I'm going to do something today that I don't normally do. And it was an interesting exercise preparing this message for this Sunday. This might be the most personal message I've ever delivered from this pulpit. Because it was almost exactly to the day, five years ago, that I was installed as the pastor of this church, as the pastor of St. Andrew's Kirk. It was June the 6th, Sunday, June the 6th, 2010. And as this five-year milestone approached over the last few weeks, I thought a lot about my time here. I, I reflected on the things we've done, the initiatives that we've undertaken, and I'm pleased to say that in a, a relatively short period of time, five years, we've made a lot of progress. This body of people, the ministry that comes out of this church, looks a lot different than it did five years ago. And I've often felt as though we've been riding a wave of God's favor. That though we worked hard, it felt as though someone was working behind the scenes to make it effective. We've embraced here a vision that pursues Christ-likeness as our first pursuit. Believing that our conformity to the character of Christ will help to transform the community that surrounds us. We've also pledged ourselves to be people of this book. We're not a ministry that's governed by some popular business model or through some clever innovation. We do ministry according to the principles that we find in this book. Sola Scriptura. Through Scripture alone, we find wisdom to do God's work. We've made a lot of progress in five years, but I think you realize there's a lot left for us to do. The work's not yet done. In, in fact, there's a sense in which greater responsibility has been given to us. Greater opportunity. So much so that we have more work to do today than we did five years ago. I want you to know that I count it to be a great privilege to serve you. I, create, I count it to be a great privilege to help you to fulfill God's high calling for you as His chosen people. Now in relation to my work here, I've probably been asked the same question almost every week for five years. At the very least, I get asked this every month for the last five years. The same question. It's the question... How long are you here for? You know, did some bishop or some cardinal, how does this all work? How did you get here and how do you stay here? Who decides? And, and I could go into that answer, but that's the question I often get. How long are you here for? And I think the reason I get asked that question a lot is because in the Bahamas there is a culture of expectation 
that foreigners come and go every few years. I've seen it among friends that I play street hockey with, friends I've got to know outside the church. It seems to be a common expectation that every few years foreigners come and foreigners go. Now that's, that's not always true. There are people here today who are living testimony that not everyone returns to their country of origin. Some people make this home. Well, truthfully, I don't know if this will end up being my home forever. I can't tell you what the long-term future is between the McPhails and St. Andrew's Kirk or the McPhails and Nassau. So I'm reluctant this morning to make some kind of pledge to you. I'm reluctant to make a promise to you that in reality I don't have the ability to keep. Uh, Just as God called me out of a place in Toronto to come to a place here in Nassau, He could in His wisdom do it again. So I don't know His plans. But this I can tell you. I want to be here. I love it here. I love this country. I love the Bahamas. And I'm delighted that the Lord has called me and my family to this place. And I'm not talking about the outward beauty of this country. Yes, the seas are beautiful. I hardly ever go for a swim. Yes, the beaches are gorgeous. I can't remember the last time I was on a Bahamian beach. The landscape, everything outwardly about this country, it's gorgeous. But that's not what I love about the Bahamas. Make no mistake, the very best thing about this country is the people. The very best thing about this country are the people of the Bahamas. Now some will say, well Bryn, aren't you worried about the crime? Don't you read the newspapers? Don't you see the terrible things that people do to one another in this country? Aren't you afraid? Aren't you concerned? Yes, I'm concerned. I'm very concerned about what I see in this country. We've had friends, you've had friends in the last few years that have been held up at gunpoint, ordered to hand over belongings at the threat of being killed or harmed. We've had friends who've endured the horrors of home invasion. We know many people, don't we, who've had their cars stolen. In many respects, living here is not safe. And I'm concerned. Of course, one of our responses to our concern is to increase security. Literally, we have security guard out here that that we never, for 200 years of this church's history, we did not have security. For the last three or four years, we have security. I have more dogs, more deadbolts, and a higher fence than I did five years ago. One response is to increase security. And yet for every defensive measure, I want to suggest to you that we as the church ought to employ some offensive measures. That we ought not simply retreat into a fortress, but that we have some offensive weapons to put into play. As our beloved hymn well puts it, 
We must arm ourselves with the sword that makes the wounded whole. I love that. What's that? That's from Old Church Arise. The sword that makes the wounded whole. You see, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the hands of the Christian church is an offensive weapon so strong that not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. There remains something positive for us to do. There remains a message for us to share. There remains a light for us to shine. I want to share with you the burden that the Lord has placed upon my heart. It's not a new burden. It's an old burden. At least it's a five-year-old burden. And I was reminded of the burden that the Lord has placed on my heart as I studied the book of Jonah. You see, the final words of the book are uttered by God, who responds to Jonah's decision to get out of Nineveh. He went and he preached for a time in answer to God's call, but eventually he got out. And in response to Jonah leaving Nineveh, God asked Jonah this question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Should I not be concerned about that great city? It's as if God is saying to Jonah, I'm not leaving Nineveh, so why are you? It's as if God's saying, I'm not giving up on those people, Jonah, so why are you giving up on those people? And as I meditated on God's question to Jonah, I was struck by what I see as God's special concern for cities. God's special concern for cities. Now those of you who grew up in a more rural setting may take exception to my suggestion that God is more concerned with cities than he is small towns. But let's at least entertain the question. Why might God be more concerned with cities? Or why would he be particularly concerned with cities? Well, God essentially answers the question in the text when he references the more than 120,000 people living in Nineveh who are spiritually lost. You see, God's interest in cities isn't related to expansive infrastructure. It's not related to sophisticated culture. Nor is it related to elevated levels of commerce. No, God's interest in cities is related to people. In particular, lost people. And cities are full of them. Cities, in large measure, are full of lost people. Nassau is full of lost people. And as I read the conclusion of the book of Jonah, I had an overwhelming sense of God's concern for this city. An overwhelming sense of God's concern for Nassau, Bahamas. So while the crime in Nassau worries me greatly, 
I recognize that retreat cannot be my only response. God's concern for NASA calls for action from those who bear the name of Christ. The good news is that the ingredients for action, the ingredients for a positive turnaround are in place in this country. We have not yet abandoned the Christian principles upon which this country was founded. Prayer and the reading of Scripture is still permissible in the House of Assembly. Christianity is still taught in most of our schools. Christian principles remain layered throughout our legal system. But of course, these things don't necessarily make a country Christ-like. So what we have are these two conflicting realities in the Bahamas. On the one hand, we have this historical, spiritual infrastructure that is explicitly Christian. And on the other hand, our society is plagued by crime and a myriad of social dysfunction. So it's become patently obvious that there's a gap. There's a gap between what we say we believe and how we behave. There's a gap between what we preach and what we practice. Now, some would argue that the local church has contributed to this gap. That the gap between belief and behavior, preaching and practicing, that the church is as guilty of of making the gap wider as any group. I won't debate that. But I will say that it remains the responsibility of the church. It's the God-ordained responsibility of the church to continually call society to forsake evil and to walk humbly with our God. To live in a manner that honors God. This is what Jonah did in Nineveh. That's essentially what he did. He walked around and he called them to account for their wicked ways and he exhorted them to act in a manner that would honor God. But the problem with Jonah is he didn't see the work through to the end. He didn't see it through to the conclusion. And what we see in Jonah is really, usually you come to a text and you say, well, here's three things we ought to do, and we clearly see it in the text. Well, this morning I've got three things for us to not do because of what we see in the text. Because Jonah becomes for us what the Christian and what the church ought never to be like. Jonah does three things that we ought to never model or replicate. The first is that he leaves the mission field. He gives up. He gets out of Nineveh. We see in the text, verse 5, Jonah went out and he sat down at a place east of the city. God never told him to get out. God never said, Jonah, good job. Thank you for going to Nineveh. I've got a little shelter for you to the east of the city. Go. God never told him that. Jonah quit. For whatever reason, he gave up. He left the mission field. 
don't want to sound unkind when I say that this is an apt description of many who profess Christ. Many who profess Christ begin well. We, like Jonah, answer the call. We go to the place we're supposed to. We do the thing that we're called to do. But then something happens. And we give up. The results don't materialize. Or there's some interpersonal challenges. And we stop doing the thing that we were called to. We leave the mission field. The second mistake that Jonah makes is he then isolates himself from others. He isolates himself from others. We're told that once Jonah leaves the mission field, once he gets out of Nineveh, we hear that he made for himself a shelter. What, were there no shelters in Nineveh? Was there no place he could have stayed? No home that would have received him? Given the fruits of his preaching, the effectiveness of the word that he brought to bear on the people, was there not a single home that wouldn't have taken him in and given him the best of hospitality? But no, he leaves the city, makes a shelter for himself. He isolates himself. It's some consolation to me that some who step back from doing ministry in a particular field at least go and find a new field to work in. We see this from time to time. Someone who, who had a fruitful or effective ministry in one place, they leave that place, but at least they go and they're effective and fruitful in a new place. Or maybe it's the instance that somebody drops out of a ministry that they were leading, but they remain in that community. They remain a part of the body of believers, and they continue to receive encouragement and fellowship from that group. But neither of those things describes Jonah. He simply gets out of town. He's by himself. He makes a shelter for himself. He isolates himself. That's the second mistake he makes. The third thing that Jonah does, or the third mistake, is he becomes a spectator. He becomes a spectator. The reason Jonah left the mission field, the reason he built a private retreat or a private shelter, we see in verse 5, so that he could see what would happen to the city. Notice that Jonah doesn't just take off. He doesn't just say, oh, the heck with them. I don't care what happens to them. He actually sets up camp. In a particular place where he has a vantage point, where he has the ability to see, to be a spectator to the future of the people in Nineveh. Jonah's way of thinking, it seems, was that he had done his part, he'd done what God had asked of him, and now he's just going to sit and watch and see what happens. And again, I don't want to sound uncharitable, but I see this in the church today. That there are people who simply want to see what happens to the church. They want to watch like a spectator to see what the church is up to, or the kinds of things it will engage in. But they have no real interest to get involved. They come simply as a spectator. Contrast that perspective with what we hear from the Lord who says should I not be concerned for that great city 
Should I not be concerned about that great city? Contrast Jonah's response to the words of Jesus who says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. What tender language about how God feels about lost people. What tender language about how God feels about the city. Well, the question remains, how does Jesus intend to pursue and gather those who have gone astray? How does Jesus plan to pursue and to gather those who have gone astray? And the answer that Scripture continually gives is the same. He plans to do it through the church. We're the answer to the question. There's lost people out there. There's desperate people out there. There's people who need Christ out there. And those who are charged with getting them and gathering them and integrating them is the church. The church is the means by which Jesus continues to express his concern for lost people. We represent Jesus. Did Jesus care about lost people? Of course he did. Did he care about people who are spiritually off track? You bet he did. So guess what our concern, what our chief concern ought to be? The same concern that was Christ's concern. It is the church's great privilege, it is the church's task to go after lost people. To proclaim life to them through Christ. Too often we're like Jonah. We retreat. We pull back. We take a break. We just want to wait and see what happens. Let other people have a go at it for a while. I'm just going to sit back. We sit and we wait for a solution to come. And we miss the obvious reality that we're supposed to be part of the solution. That God has called each of us to go seek and save the lost. Friends, you've seen what I've seen. You've seen what I've seen. The Lord has opened so many doors for this group of people in the last few years alone. The Lord has used individuals like Diana Bullard and Bessie Ramirez to make connections to the people of this community. Connections that we haven't had for a very long time. And you might say that the connections that we have with our neighbors through Diana Bullard and Bessie Ramirez is unlike any connection we've had in 200 years. The Lord has opened doors to us for this day that were not previously open to us. The Lord has given us the opportunity to influence these young men and women from the Ramfrey Homes for Children. Never in the history of Ramfrey and the history of this church has this been home base for those young people. And they're delivered to our doorstep Sunday by Sunday. Did you know this? Two buses 
filled with young people come to this site every Sunday. It's like God is sending these children and these young men and these young women and He's placing them on our doorstep. What a blessed opportunity to make a profound difference in directing the lives of these young people. More recently, the Lord has given us resources to operate a food bank. When I signed up five years ago, I didn't think I'd be handing out groceries several days a week. But that's what the Lord has done. He's poured in resources so much so that we deliver groceries to dozens of people every single week. This is not a door that I pushed open. This is a work of the Lord. The Lord has provided a means for us to do something this year that, in my knowledge, we've never done before. We are sending ten teenagers to Camp Bahamas in Eleuthera this summer. We said, oh gee, if, at the beginning of the year we thought if we could do one, two, maybe four scholarships. We're sending ten young people to camp. Friends, I, I'm simply trying to highlight for you what the Lord has done and what the Lord continues to do among us. I want you to see that the Lord is expressing His concern for this city through us. That we've become a chosen instrument used by the Lord to bless His people. I don't want to frighten you with this. But I get the distinct sense the Lord has more for us to do. That we ought not to hang our hats on all those things I just listed. Because I think that's just the first couple of laps. I get the distinct sense as I was reading Jonah over the last several months. That the Lord has more in store for us to do. And to do more, we all need to be engaged. We can't have any passengers... We can't have any spectators. We can't have anyone drop out and isolate themselves and watch from afar. We need everybody in on this. Because the opportunity is huge. And the opportunity needs your participation. What's clear is that God wants us to represent His concern for this great city and for this great country. Five years into my time here, exactly. I honestly didn't know what I was getting into. Honestly. I, I didn't have an appreciation for the history of this church. I did not have a good working knowledge of this country. Quite frankly, I was just answering the call and I didn't have the foggiest idea what I was getting into. Some might say you still don't have any idea what you're doing. <laughs> what I do know is that my affection for the people of this country is greater than it's ever been. And my determination to serve the people of this country is greater than it's ever been before. And my plea 
is that we'll continue to do this as a team. Because God has not called any single one of us to do this on our own. God has called the church to represent him in this world and in this country and in this city. And to the extent that God has called the church to represent him, we continue, won't we, to try and be the most Christ-like church we can possibly be. For Jesus' sake, for his glory.